I suppose that it's possible that you passed by Joseph this week. He was that somewhat dweeby-looking guy. And he saw you coming towards him, and he locked his eyes on yours, and you perhaps averted your gaze. Uh, You instinctively sensed that he was one of those awkward people, and you passed by him. Or it's possible that um, you saw the, the seat that was open next to Claire, and you might have taken that seat if it wasn't for the fact that there was another seat open next to someone more beautiful or handsome, and so you simply moved in that direction. You, you didn't mean to personally reject that person with the physical disability you saw as you moved on past them and didn't look them in the eye, or that guy with the stains on his clothes that you found a way to move around. It's not that you would never hang out with somebody from another race or from an entirely different culture, that person that waits on you at the restaurant. It's not like you think that that you could never be friends with them. It's certainly not beneath you to go over and say hello to that sad-looking soul that you might see after worship today sipping coffee by themselves. It's, It's not that we're against those people. It's just that much of the time, much of the time, we just don't move toward them. We may turn our heads slightly to avert their gaze. We may just bury ourselves in our own preoccupations, our very legitimate to-do lists. We may avoid the risk or the boredom or the demand or the discomfort of fraternizing with somebody who we know quickly upon examination is not our kind. It's just not one of us or one of the people we want to be. And this rule of avoiding people or certain people while affiliating with certain other kinds of people, it's not written down anywhere. It's never been verbally taught to us by our parents or our other mentors, and yet it is a commonplace practice, isn't it? It is the law of favoritism. It's the law of favoritism. We tend to pay more attention to those who seem our equals or our betters in one category or another, and we tend to pay less attention to those who seem less able or more problem-ridden than we are. We gravitate towards those who we perceive can give us a hand up the social ladder, and we limit our lingering with those who are a few rungs down that ladder from where we perceive ourselves to be. We move, or maybe we aspire to move, into certain communities or clubs or cliques or, or churches even who are filled with the kind of people we are or that we want to be. And so consciously or unconsciously, 
we go about our lives sifting and sorting, picking up data about people from their appearance. What do you look like? We're asking ourselves subconsciously. Where do you live, we may ask verbally. Where do you go to school? What do you do? Who are you married to? Are you even married? What do your kids do? And what are you wearing? And what are you driving? In other words, how should I view you? And how much use, therefore, could you be to me? From the playground, to the cocktail party, to the halls of our workplaces, our churches, our schools, we sense the strata of other people and we select those who can confer advantage to us. We include or we exclude by this law of favoritism. We may not do it all the time. We may not do it with everyone, but most everyone, most all of us do it sometimes. I know I do. It's how I can be articulate about this. This law of favoritism. Now, we're not the only ones that do this, of course. I mean, it's been, it's been done like this forever, I suppose. It's part of broken human nature. It was like this in the first century for sure. It was like this among the culture to which the Apostle James wrote those words we read a moment ago. In fact, first century Jerusalem, that's James's context, it was, it was rife with tribalism and with groupishness and with social clubs, maybe more than even our period of history is. There were these very clear lines in those days between the rich and the poor, between men and women, between Greeks and Jews, between slaves and masters, between the righteous and the obviously unrighteous. And these clear lines everybody knew about and frankly respected. If you didn't happen to be in this group and you happened to live in that group, you weren't going over to that group. If you lived in this group, and it was higher on the social ladder than that group, you weren't crossing in this direction to build relationships with people in that group. Society played favorites. And that was that. The wealthy, whatever percent, enjoyed an obscene degree of power and privilege over the poor in those days. There were outrageous lending rates that kept uh, the clubs very, very static. As James's words suggest to us in this passage, club membership was usually easy to spot. You could tell by the clothing that people wore and the, the jewelry they had on their hands. And those who were in the upper club, the upper rungs, uh, paid a lot of attention to the clothing and to the jewelry. In fact, there were entire marketplaces for ring rental in that time, in first century Jerusalem where you could rent more rings for more of your fingers to impress people about your club membership on special days or at special events. Cow-towing to those who had was a way of life for those who had not. And avoiding involvement 
with those who had even less than you, wherever you happened to be in the strata on the rungs of the ladder, was just a normal way of life. But as common as that favoritism was, the Apostle James knew it was not supposed to be the rule among the followers of Jesus. The church had been created by Christ. The church had been birthed by the the being highest on any ladder who had nonetheless chosen to build relationships with everybody further down than him. And yet the church in James's time was rapidly becoming a perpetrator of the very stratified attitudes that Jesus had died to destroy. And it was breaking James's heart because he knew that, that this God who was above all had come so low to meet people. That this God who had so much wealth had chosen to give up so much of it to bless people. And so he writes to the church, my brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. And then he goes on to supply us with two particular reasons why Christians in any age should not show favoritism. And I want to invite you this morning to look at those two reasons with me. The first reason, suggests James, is because favoritism makes us fools. Favoritism shows us to be fools. Now, the biblical definition of a fool is someone who simply does not read reality as it is. They may have a high IQ. They may have a lot of education. But if they are not reading the nature of reality as it is, then they are fools. A fool is someone who lives in ignorance of the way things truly are. I once heard the story of of two medieval knights who happened upon one another coming opposite directions on a country road at dusk one day. And being warriors by nature and profession, they immediately reached for their weaponry and fell upon each other. There there ensued a terribly brutal and bloody fight until each of them lay mortally wounded on the ground, gasping out their last breaths of life. And only then did they pull off their helmets so as to breathe a little bit more easily, and there in the fading light stared across into the face of the brother they had not seen for years. And recognizing the horror of their error, they crawled across the brief distance between them, tears streaming down their faces, and embraced. But it was too late, for death had claimed them. The Bible tells us 
that once upon a time there came into this world the ultimate night. He was, in fact, the greatest of all kings, as we've sung already today. He was someone who lived at the highest place. And yet, in love, he chose to step down off of his mount. He came all the way down from the heights of his glory to this earth. He took off the armor of his glory. And he walked among ordinary people. The king urged everyone he spoke to as he moved through this earth to take off their helmets. He urged everyone who would listen to to look while light still remained into the faces of the people around them and to recognize their brothers and their sisters. And where the wealthy of his time routinely exploited the penniless, Jesus gathered paupers around himself and shared whatever he had with them, though he too had become poor. Where the religious people of his day spurned contact with the sick or with the socially outcast or the troublesome people, Jesus actually searched those people out in order to welcome them to the heart of the Father. And just as he moved this way through the social strata, he also moved this way up the social ladder. And so where the poor of Judea routinely mocked and, and, and cursed the, the wealthy of that time, Jesus drew round him wealthy publicans and affluent tax collectors, and he made them his friends. His friends. And where the political zealots of his time cursed the armies of Rome, Jesus praised a Roman centurion soldier for his faith. Where people of any class or any clique or any club met, Jesus came offering them membership in a vastly larger, more beautiful community of humanity whose only dues were the surrender of one's heart to his love and the commitment to trying to love as he loved. In her book, Living Boldly, author Phyllis Hobe once penned this confession. I thought God only loved people who were worth loving because that is the way we love. But it isn't true. God loves the introvert and the foreigner that you'll meet this week. God loves the gracious one and the social klutz and the kind person and the abrasive jerk. God loves the homeless man and the rejected girl. He loves them the way he loves you and the way he loves me. God loves those who are difficult, different, dangerous, or dumb, for that is what all of us look like from the vantage point of holiness. From his vantage point, he looks upon us and loves us still with his arms stretched out, with his blood poured out, with his heart reaching out to his family.
So it broke the heart of James to see the church so early in its life starting to lose the ability to see everybody else the way Jesus did. He was seeing money and popularity and physical beauty and clothing becoming the criteria by which followers of Jesus were assessing the worth of the people next to them, even in the worship gatherings. And when they went about the world. And and, and so James asks, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? Can't you see the value that even the people the world deems poor or down the ladder? Can't you see the, the beauty and the goodness of what they bring to the whole family? Please don't return to the foolishness by which too many are already living, says James. So as followers of Jesus at Christ Church, let's never be fools this way. Let's resolve together that this is one of those communities of people that are not fooled by outward appearances. We'll never stop trying to look beneath the armor of the people around us. Let's make sure that every person of whatever age or color or clothing or hairstyle or history or town or job or whatever, any person that enters the circle of this community will find a warm welcome here. They'll find a searching inquiry into their story here. They'll find hearts beating for them here. They'll find the strong embrace befitting somebody who sees, as nobody perhaps in the society around sees, that this person is our precious brother, our dear sister. It's crucial that we do this because favoritism, does not only have the power to make us fools. Favoritism also has the power to make us fall. To make us fall. We are always in danger of forgetting. At least I know I am. No matter how far along I go with Jesus, I'm always still in danger of forgetting that there is really a God. Not just my idea of Him. There is a God whose character is the ultimate standard by which all goodness and worthiness will be measured. The prophet Job tells us that God shows no partiality, no favoritism to princes, and does not favor the rich over the poor, for he knows that they are all princes and paupers alike the work of his hands. And so when Jesus says, love people as I love, as I have loved you, he really expects us to do it. He expects that we will love people fairly, without partiality, and with a huge dose of mercy as he shows mercy to us. And he expects us to understand that there are consequences if we don't love like this. Listen again to the words of James. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged because judgment without mercy 
to anyone who has not been merciful will be shown. Now, when we love only the lovely, or we attack or dismiss people on the basis of superficial social appearance, we fall. This is what James is telling us here. We fall. Now, if we're followers of Jesus, dependent upon his grace, it does not mean we are going to fall out of our salvation, out of God's eternal grace. But we can fall out of the eternal life, the quality of life and graciousness, which he wants for us to experience now. We can fall out of the possibilities of human existence that are made uh, possible through a willingness to cross these lines and to find our brothers and sisters in one another. And the loss of that kind of possibility is a terrible judgment in and of itself. We run the risk of missing out on some of the most beautiful moments of communion. We run the risk of missing out on the restoration of the human family. We run the risk of failing to see that all around us every day are these brothers and sisters who would bless us and to whom we could be a blessing if we only had the eyes to recognize them. Don't wait till you're as close to death as Tom Kelly was to realize this. Tom Kelly was a medic in World War II who received the Medal of Honor for his work. And on one particular occasion, Kelly was crawling across a muddy battlefield. He was moving for hour upon hour from one broken body to the next one, giving whatever aid he could. And, and in the heat of that place, in the horror of that spot, it, it did not matter any longer to Kelly whether the soldiers he was meeting on the field were Germans or GIs. Whatever those dividing lines were, whatever those conventions had been, that distinction got erased for Kelly in the horror and the pain of that place. As Kelly continued to crawl on his belly through the mud, he began to become aware out of the corner of his eye that a very large, very menacing panzer tank was moving in his direction. And as he worked, the tank got closer and closer till it stopped barely 25 yards away from him and its gun turret trained on Kelly. And when he would move from this body over to the next one, the turret would turn and the muzzle would follow him as if the people inside the tank were just trying to decide which one of these bloody ditches would be his final resting place. As the tank sat there, Kelly became more afraid and worked more fervently to focus amidst the fear on the person in front of him and then he all of a sudden heard this clanking, grinding metal sound, and he knew that the end was almost there, and he clenched his eyes and his fists and his teeth, waiting for the end, and then there was an awful silence, and then a further banging sound, and Kelly turned his head and looked as up through the top of the tank turret there rose the figure of a German uh, army officer who just stared at him with steely eyes. 
And Kelly knew this was the end. And then the German officer raised his hand to give the order to fire. And Kelly waited for death until all of a sudden the German army officer crooked his arm instead and saluted him. From the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ and down through the ages, there have always been rare individuals who looked with eyes beyond the social and political lines that this world so easily draws. They have lived by the law of a king who called his subjects to find in the face of even the most unlikely stranger or enemy the face of a brother or sister hitherto unknown. These have been ones to whom Christ has bequeathed the true abundance of life, a love that fills the heart the more it gets poured out to a neighbor, and the joy of service in the one enduring kingdom that happens to have no real walls. As you meet people here in this place today, as you encounter them in the weeks ahead, as you go forth to the very muddy fields and those dark, dusky roads that you'll go to from here, the question for you and me is, which law, which law are we going to live by? Will it be the law of favoritism, very common in our age, or will we seek the fairer way? The Word of God says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So, together, let's do right. Let's do right. Please pray with me. Lord God, as much as we don't want to be naive about the wolves and the leeches of life, neither do we want to be fools of the other kind. Therefore, prevent us, we pray, from battling this week or from passing by unnoticed someone who may, in fact, be a secret sibling if we stop to really look. Bar us from falling as well to the sin of allowing superficial colors and facades to raise up in us a judging instead of a merciful spirit. Give us eyes like Jesus, Lord, that we might perceive in the people round about us today and tomorrow precious individuals whom you regard with kindness. Make of this your church, not a club of favorites, but a community of faith where all truly find welcome and love. For the sake of the Savior, we pray. Amen.